Coming up next on Upstate's Health Link on Air, a colorectal surgeon gives an update on prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of colorectal cancers. When colon cancer or rectal cancer is caught at an earlier stage, patients have a better chance of getting treatment and surviving for a much longer time. And a doctor of family medicine explains a program designed to reduce premature births by providing care to moms when they bring their infants to well child appointments. It's focused on improving birth outcomes and promoting the health of women, birthing people, infants, and families through innovative models of care, quality improvement, and professional development for current and future physicians. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a family medicine specialist tells how caring for moms when they bring their infants to well child appointments can help reduce premature births. But first, it's time to discuss colonoscopy and the diagnosis and treatment of colorectal cancers. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Aside from skin cancers, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women in the United States. Here to talk with me about colorectal cancer is Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, and she specializes in surgical oncology and colorectal cancer surgery. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Goh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So if I understand correctly, colorectal cancer affects men and women almost equally, and it's one of those cancers that has a better chance for successful treatment if it's caught early. Is that right? That's correct. Um, whenever you talk about cancer, when I talk to, uh, about cancer with my patients, part of what I talk about is something called the stage of a cancer. So that sort of breaks down into how big a tumor is, if it's spread to the lymph nodes or to other different parts of the body distantly from the colon. So when colon cancer or rectal cancer is caught at an earlier stage, patients have a better chance of getting treatment and surviving for a much longer time. How are most colorectal cancers discovered? That's very interesting and a great question to ask. So. Patients often come in with either no symptoms at all, which make up about a third of uh, patients who are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, or sometimes really vague and nonspecific symptoms like abdominal pain, um, changes in their bowel habits, or blood in their stool. Well, I think I've seen screening recommendations for colon cancer starting at age 50. Um, is that the case for everyone, or do some people need earlier screening? In terms of screening guidelines for somebody who we would call an average risk patient, um, most of the guidelines are still saying age 50 to start screening for colon cancers or rectal cancers. Um, but I would say at the same time, there is a shift um, where I see these screening guidelines are, are sort of changing to starting screening at around 45 years or older. That's both from the Colorectal Surgical Society guidelines, as well as the USPSTF, the United States uh, Task Preventative Task Force guidelines. Now, the other part of that question that you asked is whether or not some patients should be screened at an earlier age. So that kind of gets into um, a couple more sophisticated portions of uh, the answer. So if you have a family history of uh, colon or rectal cancer, particularly in first-degree relatives, so that means your mom, dad, brothers, sisters, or children, then it's recommended that you either start screening 10 years before the age of that relative's diagnosis or at, the age, at age 40, so whichever one comes first. So, for example, 
if you had a loved one who was diagnosed with a colorectal cancer at age 45, that means you should start screening at age 35. Sometimes in patient families that have known genetic predispositions to colorectal cancer, sort of like a lot of polyps or an associated uh, family history of colorectal cancer at an early age along with other types of cancers, those patients will actually start getting their screenings done either in their mid-teens to their mid-20s. And does, when we say screening, are we talking about colonoscopy? So for the most part, I am talking about colonoscopy, um, particularly in those high-risk groups that uh, we just discussed. But there are also other ways that colon cancer or colorectal cancer can be screened, um, not just colonoscopy. So sort of under the umbrella of endoscopies or basically using a scope, uh, patients can also get what I sort of call a mini colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy, where it only looks at the very last portion of your large intestine. Um, so that's one way that a person can get screened, colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy. Um, the other way to uh, achieve colorectal cancer screening is really through stool studies. And that can be everything from just checking for blood in one stool versus another type of test where they actually look, at, look for specific DNA that's associated with them different types of colorectal cancers or, or polyps. Well, in terms of effectiveness, which is better at finding cancer, the, the colonoscopy or the flexible sigmoidoscopy where you actually visualize inside the intestines or the, these fecal blood tests? Are, are they equally effective? So in terms of finding cancers, I would say that colonoscopy is still the, the superior test for a couple of reasons. Number one, yes, they can find a colon or a rectal cancer, but more importantly, they can also find polyps. Basically, polyps can just be abnormal growths in the colon that don't necessarily represent cancer itself, but can represent a precancer. Um, why I say that's important is not only can you find these polyps, but with colonoscopy, you can also remove them during that colonoscopy. So not only is it a diagnostic test, but it can also be a, a test that allows you to treat something. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with colorectal surgeon, Dr. Christina Goh from Upstate Medical University. I wanna ask you about the symptoms of colorectal cancer. Um, and I think you use the term, uh, you know, change in bowel habit, but, but what is that? What are we talking about with that? I would say that it can really encompass a broad spectrum of symptoms. So often whenever we're talking about a quote unquote change in bowel habits, that could be new onset constipation. Um, it could be new onset diarrhea or you can just see a change in sort of the caliber of your stool. Um, so not to get too graphic, but if your stool is usually, you know, the, the width of a quarter or a 50 cent piece, all of a sudden it's the, the caliber of linguine or a pencil, and it's consistently that way, that can sometimes be concerning for a colon or a rectal cancer. Now, regarding blood, if someone notices blood on toilet tissue, what else are you likely to ask them about? It kind of goes back to the symptoms of colon cancer itself in the sense that a lot of these symptoms that we tell patients are about, uh, tell patients about are very nonspecific. So with blood on the toilet tissue, the other things that I'm thinking, in addition to potentially a patient having colon or rectal cancer can be something um, going on sort of in the anorectal area, as an example, hemorrhoids or a split in the, the skin around the anus due to constipation, that's called an anal fissure, or it can be uh, an outpouching in the colon 
that can cause some bleeding that has nothing to do with cancer called diverticulosis. Um, so a lot of the questions that I'll ask patients are, um, is there pain whenever you are having passing a bowel movement that's associated with it? Um, you know, how much blood is, is on the toilet paper or in the toilet bowl? Are you passing any clots? Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily let me know that somebody has cancer, but does give me a better idea of how, what's going on in the patient overall. Now, if someone is suspected to have colorectal cancer, is their primary care provider likely to refer them to an oncologist or a surgeon or both? So a lot of the referral pattern that happens after a patient is diagnosed with colon cancer um, on colonoscopy, uh, you can't really diagnose it without um, getting a biopsy or basically a sample of tissue to say you have cancer. Um, that usually, that referral comes to a surgeon, either through the primary care sort of overseeing things, but more commonly from the provider who has just completed the colonoscopy and uh, found the, uh, uh, basically diagnosed it through biopsy. So that could be um, a gastroenterologist often um, who will refer that patient uh, generally first to a surgeon unless there are more concerning things going on um, that would make them concerned that that colon cancer has gone to other parts of the body. Um, or if it's rectal cancer. So if it's rectal cancer, um, then often that patient will be referred both to a surgeon um, for surgical treatment of the cancer, as well as a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist. Those types of doctors treat cancer through medicines such as chemotherapy um, for the medical oncologist and also with radiation for the radiation oncologist. Now, what is the difference between colon cancer and rectal cancer? So, the first part in terms of differences really have to do with anatomy. So, your colon is about five to six feet uh, in length, um, but whenever you talk about one's large intestine, that's both the colon and the very last part of the large intestine is called the rectum, which is mainly within one's pelvis. The reason that that distinction is important, not just to say that there are two different parts of anatomy, is that colon cancer and rectal cancer, in terms of sequences of treatment, are very different, or can be very different. So it, it depends on where it arises along, because they're part of the same tract. So it depends Correct. on where along the tract, I see. So if you locate, if you find cancer in the colon, are cancer cells likely to be all throughout the rest of the intestine? That's also another reason why I advocate so strongly for colonoscopies. Because when a person is diagnosed with either colon or rectal cancer, there's everywhere from about a 2 to 12% chance that there is another polyp or cancer in the rest of the uh, large intestine. I say 2 to 12 because it really depends on which studies you look at to see um, how often a patient has what we call synchronous um, primary tumors. So is there a spot that cancers typically arise in the colon? Is there one area that you're likely to find it more than others? It depends on which study you look at, whether in particular, colon cancers arise more frequently in the right side versus the left. Um, I think what's more provocative is that we're seeing an increase in left-sided or basically more downstream cancers, particularly in younger patients. Interesting. Well, once you know that cancer is, is confirmed or diagnosed, how do you determine what stage it is and, and whether it is spread? So we do a couple of additional tests to uh, complete what we call clinical staging of a cancer. So for colon cancer, 
Um, for both colon and rectal cancer, I talked about size of tumor as part of how we stage a patient. But more accurately, when I'm talking about that T portion or tumor portion of staging, what I'm really looking at is how deeply within the different layers of the large intestinal wall um, has the tumor spread. Now that's more easily seen in rectal cancers, either through ultrasounds or MRI. Um, and so for staging of rectal cancer in particular, we look at, uh, we can actually determine the tumor size based on both a pelvic MRI or an ultrasound. Um, we look for whether or not it's gone to distant portions of the body um, through a CAT scan or something called a PET scan of the chest, abdomen, and the pelvis. And then additionally, we do some lab work, including a tumor marker called CEA, um, to really give us an idea um, of whether or not the tumor is spread. Um, CEA, that lab value, is not very specific. So even if it's low, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have cancer. Um, we use that CEA uh, number after a person has been treated for cancer as a tracking to see whether or not the cancer has come back. Well, if I understand correctly, the tumors can be made up of different types of cancers. Which one are most, which ones are the most common? So yes, colorectal cancer can be from different types of cells, um, but about 95% of them come from the glands and are called adenocarcinomas. So that's the most common type of colorectal cancer a patient can be diagnosed with. We have to take a short break, but HealthLink on Air will be right back with more information about treatment for colorectal cancer. You're back with Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Christina Goh from Upstate Medical University about colorectal cancer. We've talked about symptoms and how this is diagnosed. Now let's talk about risk factors. What increases a person's risk of developing colorectal cancer? So I think the most common risk and one that we really can't control is someone's age. Um, Really, patients are more likely to uh, be diagnosed with colorectal cancer after age 50. Um, the average age of diagnosis for colorectal cancer is about 72 years old. Um, other things that we touched upon include a family history of colorectal cancer. So again, um, your first degree relatives, uh, particularly um, patients uh, who have relatives who were diagnosed at an earlier age have a, a higher risk of colorectal cancer than having first-degree relatives that were diagnosed at a later age. Um, even having polyps, sort of those, those non, not quite cancer, but could be precancerous growths um, that can arise in the colon can predispose someone to um, getting colon cancer. And then we also talked about sort of some genetic predispositions um, where there are certain uh, genetic factors that predispose um, patients and their families to getting cancer at an earlier age and multiple types of cancers, not just in the colon or the rectum. Okay. Since this is a cancer in our digestive tract, does our diet mm -hmm. influence our risk? Yes, so that, while there are things that we can't control, sort of like one's age, one's family history, et cetera, um, sort of diet can also um, be a risk factor. Diets high in fat, particularly animal fat, and low in calcium, folate, and fiber, um, really are suggested, those sort of diets um, have been suggested to increase your risk of developing colorectal cancer. 
On the other hand, patients who are, are eating high amounts of fiber and fruits and vegetables seem to have a lower risk of colorectal cancer. I would say, however, that these, diet, uh, these studies are pretty imperfect um, in that the idea that sort of an association doesn't necessarily mean that one's diet is the cause of, of one's cancer. Well, let's talk about in terms of treatment. Is surgery usually part of the plan? Yes. So surgery is, is the plan with both colon and rectal cancer in terms of um, trying to cure a patient of cancer. Um, and again, sort of with there, there are some differences in terms of the sequence of events, particularly with rectal cancer, um, where if patients have a tumor that is more locally advanced, so sort of going more deeply into the different layers of the rectum, or if there are lymph nodes that look suspicious on a rectal cancer patient's MRI, then that patient is likely to start with chemotherapy and radiation before getting surgery. Now, are you seeing more patients that are being uh, treated with immunotherapy? So, in terms of immunotherapy, I would say I haven't seen an increase in the trends. Uh, immunotherapy itself um, is still being used in patients who have stage four or metastatic cancer, but isn't necessarily a part of standard treatment for cancers that are earlier stages than that. Well, let's talk about how the surgery is usually done. I imagine that the location of the cancer might determine how you operate, but can you talk me through it? Well, so I think um, in terms of the location, um, it, it just really lets me know what part of the colon and what part of the associated blood supply of the colon and lymph nodes I'm going to take. But either right-sided or left-sided colon cancers or rectal cancers can be uh, operated upon surgically through minimally invasive techniques. So when I talk about minimally invasive techniques, that can be laparoscopic surgery. So those would be smaller incisions and the and skinny long instruments in order to take out the portion of the colon that is uh, of concern um, or rectum. Or we can also be using robotic surgery and me and my partners do use robotic and laparoscopic techniques um, to help treat our colorectal cancer patients. Are you able to predict ahead of time whether an ostomy is going to be required? For the most part, yes. Um, I would say that particularly for colon cancers, I counsel patients that while an ostomy is possible, um, most of the time my plan is to put them back together without an ostomy. It's a little bit trickier with rectal cancer. Um, we had talked about how often patients with rectal cancer have to receive chemotherapy or radiation before their surgery. Um, in addition to that, um, the rectum is in a more contained portion of the body. It's in, encased by the bony portions of your pelvis. So that makes it a more challenging technical uh, surgery to do. Um, sort of multiple factors in terms of rectal cancer would make me counsel a patient that they might have a temporary ostomy or depending on how low that rectal cancer is, they might need a permanent ostomy. And how do you describe an ostomy to your patients? Well, what I tell them is that it's essentially um, a loop of your intestines that, in, that comes through your abdominal wall and is attached to a bag to collect stool. So instead of passing stool through your bottom, um, as they might already be, um, as they are doing um, when they come to see me, they'll be emptying a bag um, of their own stool everywhere from two to six times a day. 
This is your host, Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and I'm speaking with Dr. Christina Goh. She's a colorectal surgeon from Upstate Medical University. Well, in terms of uh, making preparations for surgery, what do you tell patients to expect uh, in terms of the length of time that it will take and what they're going to feel like when they wake up? When I counsel a patient about what to expect for surgery, we actually go through a lot of education. Um, if they need an ostomy, not only will I talk to them about an ostomy, um, we have great wound care and ostomy nurses that will also counsel them about that. But in addition to that, I talked to them about something called an enhanced recovery system, uh, program that we have. And what that means is we add small steps here and there so that they can recover pretty quickly from surgery. Surgery itself can take everywhere from uh, two to six hours, depending on the type of surgery done and, and sort of different patient factors going into it. But when they wake up from surgery, my hope is that they can actually start sipping on clear liquids um, once they're more uh, awake enough to do so, um, if it's possible and they had a very early case. Um, I, I hope that they can start walking um, the day of their surgery. Uh, and often I, I tell them that they should expect the hospital stay everywhere from about two to five days. And then once they get home, um, how long until they're back to like their regular activities? So I think that depends on the patient uh, himself or herself. Um, in terms of activities they can do once they get home, um, the only thing that I really ask that they uh, abstain from is, is heavy lifting or sort of core work to prevent them from developing a hernia where their incision is. Um, but in terms of light activity, light duties, such as walking or, or light housework, they can do that as soon as they feel comfortable. Overall, I do tell patients that they might feel like they can do all of these things again, but really fatigue is the symptom that sort of stays with them for the longest after their surgery. And so they'll notice that they get tired more quickly after doing, say, a, a, a chore that wouldn't um, make them tired before. Um, and that recovery period can take everywhere from four to six weeks for, for most patients. Let's talk about the risks of this surgery. What are the things that patients need to be aware of, you know, before they agree to this type of surgery? Every surgery, regardless of whether it's acting on the colon or, you know, taking something off of a skin lesion, for example, has a risk of bleeding and infection. Um, but particular to colorectal surgery, um, the other things that I also worry about, in addition to bleeding and infection, uh, include something called an anastomotic leak. So if a patient um, has por a portion of their colon or rectum um, taken out, and the colon and rectum are basically a pipe, I put those, uh, those two ends that are left in the body back together. And the medical term for that reconnection is, is an anastomosis. So anastomotic leaks are, are probably the, the complication that I, I worry about the most after this type of surgery. And the risks of that really depend on whether it's on the upstream or the right side part of your colon or the downstream or left side part of your colon and rectum. So that can range everywhere from about 3 to 5% of the time. Um, when a leak occurs, what I tell patients what before surgery in terms of risks of leaks is treatment for that leak can be everything from antibiotics and placement of a drain to redoing the reconnection and potentially placing a temporary ostomy um, to save their life. What are the chances that uh, colorectal cancer will return in someone who's already had it and been treated for it? Is that a, is that a real concern? Yes, and so usually if that's going to happen, um, it again depends on staging. Um, so we talked a little bit about clinical staging or basically 
the way that we do the different imaging and blood work tests before surgery to get an idea of how extensive the cancer is. But um, I'm all, we also talk about pathologic staging, and that's really after you've done the surgery and have taken out the cancer, how many lymph nodes are, are truly involved, how deep is the tumor um, whenever one looks under the microscope. Um, so the reason uh, that we do that is to decide whether or not a patient would need chemotherapy afterwards, et cetera. But also, it does give us a good idea of how likely the cancer is going to come back. Um, part of what we do to see whether the cancer comes back is called surveillance. Um, and if that, that occurs for, for about five years after a patient has completed treatment of their cancer. Um, and it's been shown that the risk of cancers coming back sort of the highest risk occurs in the first two years, but can um, the risk goes down after about five years. It's never quite zero, um, but, but it does go back down to the general population um, risk after if, if you're five years without any um, evidence of the cancer coming back. Let me ask you before we have to wrap up, what areas of research in colorectal cancer do you think hold the most promise? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I think um, part of it is is trying to figure out um, why we see younger patients um, getting uh, colorectal cancer um, more. You know, it seems like that that patient population, the younger pa uh, population, um, the incidence of colorectal cancer is going up. Um, I said that immunotherapy is, is really sort of used sort of for stage four cancers, but um, you know, a lot can be a lot of research is done to see whether or not that can be better tailored um, to non-stage four cancers. Uh, and I, there's a lot of research in rectal cancer to see what, how radiation and chemotherapy can better treat these cancers before going to surgery. Um, all of these things are, you know, in different uh, stages of development and can really give us a better insight into um, a disease process that affects so many people. This has been very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in surgical oncology and colorectal cancer surgery. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a program designed to reduce premature births. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Family Medicine Education Consortium and Implicit Network has had a goal since the early 1990s to help prevent premature births. Recently, they developed a model that focuses on preventing premature births one woman at a time by providing interconception care to moms during well child visits. I'm pleased to be speaking with a physician who's been involved with this effort since its inception. Dr. Jean Bailey is an associate professor of family medicine at Upstate who also oversees the Family Medicine Residency Program. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Bailey. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me today. Can you tell us uh, why the Implicit Network got started and, and what is Implicit? Sure. The implicit network stands for interventions to minimize preterm and low birth weight infants using continuous quality improvement techniques. Hence, we use the word implicit. Um, it actually is uh, a family medicine maternal child health learning collaborative, and it's focused on improving birth outcomes and promoting the health of women birthing people, infants, and families through innovative models of care, quality improvement, 
and professional development for current and future physicians. It began in the 1990s under the leadership of Dr. Stephen Radcliffe and has grown to now include over 33 different sites in eight states, and it's gained the full support of many organizations, one of them which uh, is the March of Dimes. Uh, their recent effort is the development of the Interconception Care ICC model that focuses on care provided to mothers between pregnancies to improve health outcomes for women, newborns, and children. So let me ask you, why are preterm births or low birth weight babies a concern? There are many major leading causes of pregnancy-related uh, issues, and it turns out that uh, preterm birth uh, is the second uh, most cause for um, uh, problems during pregnancy and death. Uh, it's only preceded by actually birth uh, defects. Uh, so it is uh, an issue that actually the March of Dimes and many of us are focusing on uh, quite heavily. And so uh, we find that uh, many of the issues that surround preterm birth or low birth weight actually can be prevented. And when you say deaths, do you mean maternal mortality or infant mortality? So um, actually maternal mortality turns out to be um, the leading cause are heart conditions and stroke. But when we're talking about the infant, it is the second leading cause of infant mortality in the United States. I see. Well, now let's talk about the causes of preterm birth. What, what, what are some of the things that cause that? So the, um, uh, that the things that can cause it, there's many risk factors. I think it's important to know why we're so concerned about it, and that's because the earlier a baby is born, the higher the risk of death or serious disability. In 2018, preterm birth and low birth weight accounted for about 17% of infant deaths. Babies who survive can also have breathing issues, intestinal and digestive problems, and uh, bleeding in their brains. And there are many, many risk factors that we look at that fall into some major categories, including the increase in multiple pregnancies, especially with infertility treatments. There's infection and chronic conditions that also contribute, uh, especially uh, diabetes or high blood pressure. And we all know that obesity now is something that we look at very seriously and actually is now a major risk factor for pregnant women. Uh, specifically, uh, we want to look also at tobacco smoke, alcohol, or uh, drug use, uh, advancing maternal age. Um, there's also if a woman who has had a history of a preterm uh, baby or suspected growth restriction in the past, that that also puts them at risk at this pregnancy, uh, and, and really many more. You know, um, a lot of these also relate to low socioeconomic status, and we know that those are factors sometimes that are very difficult to really uh, make uh, a difference in as far as a medication and really requires a lot more uh, look into uh, the life of the, the, the relationships, the social situations that our, our patients present uh, to us. Let's talk about why this effort targets moms who are bringing their babies to well-child appointments, because you're from the family medicine specialty. That, that's really the only one where providers are caring for both the mother and baby, is that right? That's correct. Family medicine is uh, a specialty where we actually take care of patients pretty much unrestricted by age or problem. So we're not really focused on one particular system, but really is more developing our practices over longitudinal time and building relationships with our patients. Uh, we also, uh, in, in, in my practice uh, particularly, I do take care of uh, a broad scope of patients. So really uh, from uh, the time that the baby is actually inside of mom or in the womb to potentially taking care of uh, families older 
uh, grandparents or great-grandparents to the end of life. So we kind of refer to that as womb-to-tomb uh, uh, medicine. So in other words, we're really looking at the patient as a whole and in the context of their family and in their community, more the, the social construct that many patients uh, present to us in. And so in family medicine, it's not uncommon for us to be taking care of both pediatrics and adults, which is unique to family medicine. And as a provider, do you see value in being able to care for mother and baby together? Do you feel that that gives you a more complete look at both of them? So, um, you know, there's many times when, you know, having the mother as my patient, understanding and caring for her uh, makes a huge difference when caring for the baby. You know, having the opportunity to already have had a relationship, and in my case, taking care of the mother before, during, and after their pregnancy, and then caring for the baby afterwards, I feel it offers a huge advantage um, that uh, my patients already have developed a rapport with me. They know my decision-making style. They really come to trust me and appreciate that I'm their primary care doctor for the whole family. Uh, you know, there's a unique bond and it's quite gratifying for both of us. You know, I have some patients where they literally have not seen any other doctor and that I've taken care of them uh, as a child uh, and then delivered their babies and then taking care of them as well. Uh, also, many parents and even grandparents uh, come to me. And so, you know, it's an opportunity to really uh, spend time uh, with both that mother and baby diet, as we call it in the ICC world, where it's really both of them coming in at once. So, you know, we focus a lot also during those times then on the social determinants of health, and uh, we're able to you know, prevent, I think, a lot of the risk factors that set our moms up for potential preterm birth and low birth weight. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jean Bailey, an associate professor and doctor of family medicine at Upstate. We're discussing a family medicine maternal child health collaboration focused on improving birth outcomes and promoting the health of women, birthing people, infants, and families. So what are the concerns that you make sure to discuss with moms that are part of this implicit program, and why do you focus on these particular items? There's uh, four major areas that we discuss during each of the uh, well-child visit, and, uh, you know, I, I do this also with our residents, and they have developed brochures for each of the areas, and so those include smoking, uh, screening for smoking and tobacco use, screening for depression, um, also screening for birth spacing and birth control, and lastly, whether our moms are currently taking uh, folic acid. And uh, that, uh, so what we do is our message for smoking basically is we know that pregnant women who smoke or are exposed to secondhand smoke are at greater risk for developing a low birth weight baby. And we use the five A's approach to help our patients begin the difficult process of smoking cessation. And those five A's are to ask, advise, assess, assist, and then to arrange. And so we're able to uh, engage our patients and help them with uh, what we see as a very preventable risk factor. Uh, as far as uh, depression is concerned, perinatal depression uh, happens during pregnancy or in the first year after having a baby, and it's actually one of the most common medical complications of pregnancy. It can affect up to one in seven women, or about 15%. And it also includes postpartum depression, which is a depression that happens after pregnancy. So it's really important, we feel, and this is why it's important to use the well-child visit, is that under normal circumstances, a, a, a woman who's delivered may not follow up with their um, maternity care provider for six to eight weeks, and they may have had a wonderful delivery, everything's gone fine, and then soon, maybe a week or two afterwards, they're in a depression, and uh, 
you know, we have the opportunity to screen them for depression using the common tool, the PHQ-2 tool during the well-child visits. Moms feel that that's really important. I think that they really like the fact that we're also focused on them as well as on the babies. Um, as far as uh, the, the third component, which is birth spacing uh, or birth control, it's really um, not about a conversation regarding what type of birth control uh, a patient wants to go on. We certainly do discuss the efficacy of different um, types of birth control, but really this is more to talk about um, the birth spacing that is now in the literature and the recommendation that possibly women should wait between births up to 18 months so that we can uh, reduce the, the possibility of preterm birth and low birth weight. We know that moms who get pregnant very early after delivering a baby are at higher risk for this. So, you know, we want to we want to initiate that discussion as soon as possible so we can get a feel for where uh, mom is and the family is as far as how close they want to have their babies. Um, it's really to help uh, be sensitive to their reproductive needs uh, of our patients. You mentioned folic acid as well. Yes. Yeah, so folic acid seems to be sort of out of the uh, preterm birth and low birth weight discussion, but since we know that uh, severe birth defects account for the number one cause of infant deaths, up to 20%, and taking folic acid uh, is a very simple intervention that we can do that helps to prevent spine and brain malformations. We added that to the implicit uh, uh, areas of concern as well and screening, make sure moms stay on their prenatal vitamins, even if they're not planning uh, to have another uh, baby soon. Now, this effort I know got underway initially in the 1990s. Has it been in place long enough and used by enough family medicine providers to show any positive change? So we've had several publications now that shows that it does work to do this at the well-child visit. 94% of moms attend their well-child visit, and 93% we find are willing to receive health advice from their child's doctor. And what we've been able to show is that we have been able to change behavior in both providers and patients. So getting them to screen during well-child visits and then seeing the benefits on patients um, we're, we're in the middle, uh, what we are doing is with the collaborative is collecting data from multiple sites. And so we sift through that data and we're in the midst right now of analyzing it. And for the specific interventions, we're still kind of trying to find out what works, what doesn't work. You know, everything, uh, everybody kind of does things uh, a little bit different depending on the patient and, and the provider. But we have shown that, and even in our own practice, that we can achieve an 80 to 90% screening rate, which I think is great for us to be able to have opportunity now to, to intervene with our moms. Now, I know you work closely with the family medicine residents. Is this idea, this concept sort of folded into the education of upcoming doctors of family medicine so that this will not be a new program for them, but it'll just be second nature to the way they practice? We know that if we can get this education early on in our physician's training, that we have a higher success rate and really getting them to do this when they get done in our own residency program. I have two residents that have actually taken the lead on developing this and collecting data uh, for our practice, but most of the sites that are doing this right now are residency programs. So we really uh, believe and feel that it's important for not only our residents, but staff too, to learn this model and to screen, use this screening tool and to get them to feel comfortable with using this during the well-child visit up to two years of age. So yes, we want this to become second nature. And I think the earlier we can do this in the educational process, the better. I appreciate hearing about this effort to reduce premature births. Thank you to Dr. Jean Bailey, an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Harmony Button has had her work published in Best American Notable Essays of 2015. She gifted us with a gorgeous short poem celebrating the birth of a new family. Here is Rich. King-size sheets on a queen-size bed. Corn silk scalp and milky head. Late night nightlight salt lamp glow. Daytime naps and days of slow walks and long talks and rich snacks in bed. Honey crisp apples and almond-dappled crumbs of toast we offer the dog as we count and log the minutes of sleep and ounces of milk. This is how we show our love from before and our love's new debut. Clean sheets, warm sleep, a precious few moments of skin on skin with not baby, him. My new old body back to thin and fits against his torso for so long as we can until our mouths that clutch unlatch from one and open to another, as if the world were made of milk, and we three were, all of us, afloat and drowning in it. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how natural light impacts our wellness and productivity. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.